Um, awesome. Hey, we are in Mark chapter 6 this morning. If you have uh, your Bible, go ahead and open that up. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we have some um, at our resource table in uh, the front. Uh, grab one of those. That's our gift to you. We'll also have it on the, on the screen uh, for you to follow along if you would uh, if you would like. It's been a really great couple of weeks um, through Mark's Gospel. Um, two weeks ago, uh, Donnie Jones uh, preached uh, from, um, from, from Mark. Last week, we concluded our time um, in Mark chapter 5. Um, and this morning, we go into, uh, we go into Mark chapter 6, um, and we see, uh, we see the rejection of Jesus from those um, Within his within his hometown, um, and so it's a it's a hard passage. Like as I was, um, you know, preparing and reading this this past week and getting ready for this morning. I mean, there's some difficult things that we're confronted with in this passage. There's some questions that, as we work our way through this first initial portion of Mark chapter six, in light of what we saw at the conclusion of Mark chapter five, I mean, there's some some challenging things that we see here within this passage. There's some scary things that we see within this passage. There's some really hopeful things that we see here uh, this morning within this passage. And then um, looking ahead to where we'll be going next week, we see kind of a a prequel to what will be uh, revealed even more fully in Matthew chapter 28 or at the conclusion of Mark's gospel in the Great Commission. And so there's a lot that's going on in this section. So Hang with us. Um, I want to review a little bit in the beginning on where uh, we have have been, uh, specifically last week as we prepare to go into um, these first verses of chapter 6. Last week, as we finished up our time in Mark chapter 5, we saw Jesus... we saw Jesus showing himself as, as savior of the sick and sorrowful, right? We saw a lot of broken people. We saw a lot of brokenness um, in our time and as we concluded out Mark chapter 5. Last week, we saw Jesus, the Son of God, setting free those who were experiencing the full weight of the effects of sin on and in this world. Okay, as we work our way through, as we concluded our time in Mark chapter 5, we see Genesis chapter 3 like all over what's going on in the lives of, of these people, right? We see, we see brokenness. We see a world not as God had designed it to be, but, but now uh, a world which leaves us longing for and desiring for hope and joy and redemption, and reconciliation, right? Justice, all of the things that the brokenness that we experience in our lives and that we see in the world around us drive us to. We saw that as we concluded out Mark chapter 5. We saw Jesus displaying supernatural power over the past few weeks, right? We saw him displaying a power to accomplish a work that no one else was capable of matching and, and doing so out of grace and mercy. Now, this is who Christ is, right? If you're here this morning, you're all confused about the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Let us understand that Christ moves in a miraculous way. He does amazing, redemptive things in the lives of broken people, and he does so out of his grace and his mercy. Last week, 
At no point at the conclusion of Mark chapter 5 did we see merit from any of those who approached Jesus in light of the brokenness that they were experiencing in their lives, right? There was no merit. It was simply this humility. It was this faith. It was this sense of desperation that brought them to Jesus. And out of this and in Christ's grace and mercy, we see him free the oppressed and heal the sick and bring the dead back to life. And we concluded our time by saying, man, that is good news for spiritually dead people, right? That as we approach Christ in, in, in faith, right, and with confidence in his work upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, right, and our adoption into the family of God, that we might indeed cry out, Abba, Father, this morning with confidence and boldness through the blood of Jesus, that that is good news, right? This is good stuff. This is good news that the gospel proclaims to us. This is why we say, hey, wake up every day and preach the gospel to yourself, because I don't know what you're dealing with in your life, right? I don't know what the consequences of, of Genesis chapter 3 look like specifically in your heart and in your person and in your relationships, but I do know this, right? I do know that Christ is capable of bringing about reconciliation and redemption and hope and joy in the midst of sorrowful, sorrowful circumstances. That's what we saw last week as we finished our time in Mark chapter 5. This morning, as we go into Mark chapter 6, again, we will see Christ's rejection in his hometown of Nazareth. We see an extremely important and valuable teaching opportunity for the disciples from Jesus, both within the context of this passage for those in whom Mark is writing this gospel to, and for us here this morning in 2017. We're answering this question, or we're at least we're wrestling with this question as we work through this passage. What does it look like for the people of God who experience rejection in this world? Because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, amongst other places, that to follow after him will result in rejection and persecution and trial and tribulation. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. Don't be confused this morning, right? Let us, let us not be confused this morning that when we believe on Christ, when we embrace him as Lord and Savior and shepherd, right, as he calls us unto himself, that, that our lives then become like really soft and cake, right? They don't. That is not what it looks like for the follower of Jesus. And so great hope this morning from this as Jesus teaches us what it looks like to deal with rejection, Right? Uh, we see encouragement for the followers of Jesus in the context to which Mark is writing. And for those of us here in 2017, right, living with this ever-present goal of mission that informs the way that we live, right? the things that we say, the joys that we pursue, and the sacrifices that we make. And so let me give you a couple of questions that I want us to consider as we work our way through two observations from the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. Number one, does your consideration of Christ stop short of acceptance and adoration? Does your consideration of Christ stop short of acceptance and adoration? What we see very clearly in this passage is that astonishment at the work of Jesus, at the word of Jesus, while conceded by many, is not enough. But Jesus demands more. 
right? That, that to stop short of to stop short of acceptance and adoration is is to fall desperately and dangerously short of what it means to follow after Jesus. So that's the first question that I want us to consider as we work our way through these six verses. Does your consideration of Christ stop short of acceptance and adoration? The second thing that I want you to think about as we work through this passage is this. What is it that most influences your life? As a follower of Jesus, or perhaps as a skeptic in the room this morning, what is it that most influences your life? Is it faith? Is Is it faith in the plan of God the Father, His will, His purpose, and in the Son, Jesus Christ? Is that what is driving us? Is that what is influencing our lives? Or is it familiarity? Is it, is it faith or is it familiarity? Familiarity with Jesus, right? And in his bride, the church, which produces within us contempt and laziness and legalism and perhaps all three at the same time, okay? And so we have, to, we have to answer this question. We have to wrestle with these questions as we work our way through this passage. The main idea that I want us to look at this morning is, is this, that we do not come to Jesus on our terms, but are to see him for who he really is. We cannot come to Jesus on our terms, on our expectations, or our hopes alone, apart from who he really is, who he says that he is, as Christ is presented on the pages of Scripture. This morning, we are looking at the biblical Christ. Okay, and so we ask this question, right, of, 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 of what it looks like to, to come to him, right, and what it looks like to, to follow him in, in faith as opposed to resting in familiarity. Why is this so important? Well, because it is this Christ who heals sinners, right? The, the, the biblical Christ, Christ on his terms as he would present himself and reveal himself on the pages of Scripture, This is the Christ that brings about the salvation of our souls. This is the Christ in whom's atoning work upon the cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. That's who this is, right? Any other Christ than the Christ that we see displayed on the pages of Scripture, if he gives his life or not, is not sufficient, right, for the salvation of our souls. Christ on his terms. This is what we see encouraged from this passage this morning. And we will see him continue to move forward preaching this amazing message of grace, even in light of his rejection. And so let's read this morning Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through uh, 1 through 6. Jesus' rejection, rejection at Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? 
How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And so they ask these five questions concerning Jesus and the astonishment that they are feeling in light of the teaching that he's presenting here in synagogue, right? Continuing on uh, into the the second half of verse 3 and through on into 4. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he, being Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Hey, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for our time together in your word. Um, your, your word proclaimed is, is the, hope of your, of the hope of your people. And the good news of the gospel is the soft pillow upon which we lay our heads. And so we pray this morning that you would encourage us by the hope of the gospel, the work of Jesus, your plan to redeem your people to the glory of your name and for our good. That even this morning as we approach this passage and we feel uh, conviction and we wrestle with difficult questions, that you might uh, work within our hearts to bring about a transformation that is most honoring to you and that it might be a true joy for your people this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Two observations that I want us to make as we work towards answering the questions that we asked in the beginning. The first is this. We see here in his hometown, the first four verses this morning, the offense of Christ and the folly of familiarity. The offense of Christ and the folly of familiarity. We're going to break these two things up and we're going to look at them from the first four verses. And so from the first three verses, we see the offense of Christ. Jesus has moved on from Capernaum and he has returned to his hometown of Nazareth, stick town, right? Small town, small town USA. Right? And their response is initially shocking because Jesus is not met with cheers and celebration. This is not like the hometown hero returns home, right? To a, to a glorious parade and a wonderful welcome. But instead, he, he is rejected in light of the offense that the people feel towards him. And he is astonished at the response of the people. Because the people, while astonished at the teaching of Jesus, choose not to embrace him or celebrate him or or to, to exalt him. But instead, out of pride and arrogance, we see their hardness of heart as offense seeps its way to the surface. Step into the scene for just a moment. Let's imagine the dialogue that is taking place within the crowd as Jesus is teaching in synagogue something that is bringing about astonishment in the lives and in the hearts and in the minds of the people. Consider the dialogue within the crowd. I imagine that it looks something like this. As Jesus is teaching and he is doing so with authority because that is how Jesus teaches and that is how Jesus speaks. We've seen that contextually as we've worked our way through this book already elbows upon one another right 
And, and individuals looking into the eyes of others and asking questions like this. Can you believe what's going on here? Or can you believe all that this guy is saying, the carpenter's kid, right? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, the carpenter's kid, apparently now thinks that he is a prophet. Yeah, his, his family is, is really solid, but like this guy wasn't trained, right? He didn't go, to, uh, he didn't go to, to seminary. Where does he get all this stuff at? Does he think that he is better than we are? And their amazement in light of the teaching of Jesus, which we see is presented here by Mark in the first three verses, quickly gives way to this offense. And it is here that we see how this passage informs the way that we understand how we are to approach Jesus. It's here that we see how this passage informs how we are to approach Jesus. And so let's ask ourselves a series of questions. Questions In light of what we see here from this passage, the authoritative teaching of Jesus that leads a people into amazement while at the same time giving way to offense and ultimately rejection, does the teaching of Jesus amaze you? Right, does the teaching, do the, does the authoritative teaching of Jesus lead you into amazement? Does the work of Jesus amaze you? Well, it should, right? And regardless of your approach to Jesus this morning, you would likely concede that if, if what Jesus is saying is true and the things that he did really happened, well, then that is indeed truly amazing. But what we see from this passage is that it ought not just amaze us. While it ought to amaze us, Right? And the work and the word of Jesus lead us into a sense of awe. It doesn't stop there. Because what we see from this passage is that awe and amazement at the work and teaching of Jesus is not adequate in and of itself to bring about the forgiveness of sins in your life. But that amazement can lead one not into salvation, but instead into offense. The word that is used by Mark here for offended is equivalent with our word scandalized. And so we can say this about the people's perception of the teaching of Jesus, that it is a scandalous teaching, right? That Jesus is, is scandalous among the people here. The things that he says and the way that he says them leads them to this, to this opinion, to this position. The teaching of Jesus was was indeed scandalous to the crowd before him. And it was in his very own hometown. The ones that should have known him best are at this point most offended by what he has to say, really setting the stage for us to understand what we see at the end of the life of Jesus and the offense that ultimately leads to his crucifixion. Right, we're seeing now a small portion of how the nation ultimately responds to Jesus towards the end of his earthly ministry. The teaching of Jesus was scandalous to the crowd before him. 
And in their offense, despite their witness of his teaching and work, they are ultimately led into a rejection of Jesus, a turning away, a pushing away of the biblical Jesus, of the powerful Jesus, of the same Jesus that we have seen over the past few weeks let's look at last week alone, has done most amazing deeds. Who has healed the sick and freed the oppressed. Who has cast demons out of individuals who are feeling the full weight of brokenness and despair. So where does their offense come from? Well, it flows from something that crouches dangerously close to the door, and that is familiarity. And so we look here and we see initially the offense that those who are listening to the teaching of Jesus feel in light of his authoritative and powerful teaching, his works. And we see from that, ultimately, the folly of familiarity. So what is the danger of familiarity with Jesus? What is the danger of a familiarity of Jesus? In verses 4 and 5, in what some have referred to as the saddest verses in the Bible, we see a people reject Jesus on on account of their inability to understand him. And out of a heart of pride, out of a heart of pride, the pride of Nazareth is rejected. Verse verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Like the prophets before, Jesus would not only be rejected by those who ought to see the most clearly, but as the prophets who came before him were killed, so too would Jesus be crucified at the hands of lawless and sinful men. Only in Jesus we see love and honor and self-sacrifice as he gives his life, becoming a cure and nailed to a tree, all in accordance with the scriptures and God's plan to save a people. And their pride would cost them. And we can say this about pride as it presents itself in our own lives, that pride not only costs the individuals here in Nazareth, but it pride ultimately costs us as well. Listen to what John Piper has to say about this passage and the pride of the people in their rejection of Jesus. He says this, Think of what this pride costs the people of Nazareth. Because he had walked their streets and attended their weddings, worshipped in their synagogue, played with some of them as a child, and maybe built some of their houses and furniture, he wasn't so high and mighty. And so the mighty and merciful power of the Messiah was, and we'll see this later on in the second portion of our passage, withheld from them. Listen to what he says here. John Piper says this, This needs to put the fear of God in us. This needs to put the fear of God within our hearts. Pride has incredible power to blind our eyes and deaden our hearts. And there are things that God won't do for us if we are proud. 
So we see here in verses 4 and 5 how familiarity has indeed the old adage rings true, bread contempt. But what does this look like in our own lives? Now, there's many ways that pride can manifest itself in our lives in relationship to our relation with Christ and his people, his church, and the world around us. And so let me just highlight a a few of the ways that you and I are in danger of finding ourselves drifting into familiarity and failing to live as Christ would so desire and enable his people to live a life of faith. Here's here's one way. And this one hits really close to home for me personally. The, The benefits and the challenges of growing up in church. This is one way that familiarity breeds contempt within the hearts of God's people. Growing up around God's people. Growing up in Christian community. I didn't grow up in Christian community. I didn't grow up in church, right? And so so I don't understand this one as much initially, but as I begin to explore it, I certainly do because I understand that I wrestle with some of the own thing some of these own things within within my heart. Here's some ways that familiarity breeds contempt within our own lives and hearts as it relates to to growing up and and being around God's people. Being a part of the church becomes more something we do and less who God, by His grace, makes us. Right? Every week we talk about how we value liturgy here at Christ the King, that we spend a little bit of time in the beginning greeting one another each week, meeting someone new and catching up with old friends who we might not have seen over the course of the last few days. And we do that not because it's like a really neat transition point, but because we truly value the community that God has adopted us into, that he has brought us into as he is establishing this family. Right, this this new this new family, this this wonderful family that supersedes even the earthly relationships that we experience and encounter around us with our very own family. And yet so many times we we step back and we begin to see this family, this community that God has invited us into to enjoy with one another as burdensome as opposed to something that is to be enjoyed as God has invited us by his grace into it. Let me, let me continue unpacking a few things here. Your membership, your partnership, your, your a part, being a part of a local church is an ever-present reminder of the family that we've been adopted into through the shed blood of Jesus. There is no closer family than a family of Faith, And so we ask ourselves this question, do we see the community that God is bringing together around us in that way or has it become something else? Do we value, do we appreciate, do we enjoy, do we look forward to time with and fellowship with this community of individuals that God has redeemed through the blood of the Son and brought us together within a common power for a common purpose, a common mission to bring about His will here on earth. The benefits and the challenges of of being around a corporate body. We cannot go into autopilot and just go through life, right? Because familiarity breeds contempt. And we see that here on behalf of those that Jesus has has grown up around. 
Number two, the second thing, not only the benefits and challenges of being a part of a local fellowship, but an indifference towards God's word that can develop within us because it's always been there and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Right to, to, to neglect or to push away or to flee from intimacy with God in his word because I've had one of these around me for as long as I can remember. And in light of that, um, because there isn't this ever-present gospel working in my life and it's, it's you know, being acknowledged by me, uh, I've just become uh, numb to the presence of the word of the Lord. Right, to, to where time with God in his word becomes something that is neglected by his people. This is a danger of familiarity. We have become so familiar and comfortable with the presence of the scriptures in our lives that we neglect engaging him. Let us understand this. This is how holy God has chosen to engage with his people. This is his word in the dialogue that he has invited us to be a part of with him. We are able to pray to the Father through the Son, our advocate, right? Uh, the, the one who, who intercedes for us. We are able to pray to the Father. And how do we then hear from the Father? Well, he has given us his word. And so if we desire to grow in intimacy with the Father, to know him, to enjoy him, to be brought, as we sang earlier, deeper still, it will require an interaction with God's word, an appreciation with God's word. Familiarity breeds contempt. And so let's step back for a moment and let's recognize how the things of God have perhaps become familiar in our lives and have now affected our own personal growth, right? Connection, relationship, holiness in relation to him. Are we good so far? Challenging things here from this passage. The second thing that I want us to see from this passage is this, the response of Christ to the blatant unbelief of the people. We see that they're astonished, but it drives them to, to a position of, 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 of continued unbelief. Uh, of flowing from this familiarity. There is a drastic decrease in the number of people that Jesus heals within this passage in light of what we have seen him do over the course of the first five chapters. Why? Right? Why does this happen? Well, let's consider what we see last week in Mark chapter 5 and the work of Jesus in the lives of Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter. How do we see this approach of Jesus from these three individuals at the conclusion of Mark chapter 5? Well, there's this sense of desperation. That was like the word of the week last week, right? Humility and desperation. We understand from Jarius this, this feeling of complete and total and utter helplessness that his daughter, his only daughter, is dying at home and he's at the end of his rope. There's nothing that he is able to do for her. And so he approaches Jesus in a way that many would consider humiliating for a man of such power and prestige to approach Jesus on his knees, pleading with him to come and to make her well. And Jesus agrees. Then, while he is on his way with Jairus to go and to, to see to his 
daughter, he is confronted by this, with this woman with the issue of blood, right? Who has had this, this unimaginable health issue that's been playing itself out in her life for years that no one is able to do anything about. It seems as though all possible options and resources have been exhausted. Do we know what this feels like? Absolutely, we do, right? To exhaust every possible option and resource to the point that she is brought to the end of her rope. And in, being, in doing so, she is, she is casting herself upon uh, the feet of Jesus, desiring only to touch his garment, believing that if she is able to do so, then she will indeed be made well. This is what desperation and humility gives way to in our lives. When we are brought to a position of posture, of understanding who we are and how broken we are and how desperate we are, man, we see acknowledgement, we see humility, and in light of each of these situations, Jesus responds in a most gracious and merciful way, a way that gives way to incredible joy, even in the face of difficulty. As Jairus' daughter dies, Jesus continues on his way and he makes her alive again. This is how Jesus responds to desperation and acknowledgement and humility. Right? In light of the familiarity that the citizens of this small town feel towards Jesus, this is not the approach that they take when it comes to approaching him. If we were to look back at the dialogue that takes place in those first three verses concerning the person of Jesus, while it is uh, flowing from a, a degree of amazement, it does not flow from an idea of personal brokenness and acknowledgement and humility before the king of all creation, right? That's not the posture that's taken by these people. Do we see that? Mark chapter five, desperation, humility, acknowledgement, brokenness. We said last week, man, that whereas before there is no entrance into the temple for the broken, that now into the truer and better temple that is Christ, there is no entrance apart from acknowledgement of brokenness, right? That we have to approach Christ in humility, Right? And with a sense of desperation, knowing, and we are all desperate people, right? We are all desperate people. We all got problems, right? We are are spiritually, apart from the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit and the gospel in our life, we are are dead and separated from God with no hope of reconciliation, no hope of redemption because we are unable to. We can't live in accordance with the law of God, right? We don't work ourselves back into good standing with Him. And so we are desperate and, and broken and we acknowledge that and we acknowledge His power and His person and we approach Him in humility and Jesus does amazing things. That is not what happens here in Nazareth. Listen to what Timothy Keller has to say about the work of Jesus and the right response to his work. He says, Jesus's miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was. Now, this alone might challenge the way that we understand the miracles of Christ. Not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was. Was, but instead, signs of the kingdom that show us how his redemptive power operates. What do we mean by that? What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to tell us. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed 
by him. And this is what he says about this, this issue of Jesus not being able to heal here in Nazareth. He said he could not do a deed that would not redeem. You see, God desires for those who would approach him to do so in faith. In fact, we see that apart from faith, we do not and would not approach the biblical Jesus at all. So let's like lay down some characteristics of the biblical Jesus really quick. Okay, I'm about to like overview us a lot of things at one time. The biblical Jesus, what all we know about the Jesus who brings about redemption for broken people. Well, he is indeed the begotten son of God, equal in essence with the father who has existed in perfect unity within the Trinity since before the ages began. The biblical Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. He is holy God and he is holy man. He is acquainted with temptation and at the same time, as the author of Hebrews tells us, without sin. He is perfect in every way. And he would give his life upon the cross to save broken and dead people, to make our hearts alive and to transform our affections. Christ calls a people to follow after him as sheep follow the shepherd, to submit to his instruction and to live by the power that he would provide through the spirit, to follow him into death and in doing so to embrace a life that is altogether different than what you might have expected. The biblical Jesus calls us to find comfort from the trials of this world. Remember the audience in whom Mark is writing to a group of persecuted Christians who are experiencing difficulty as a result of their fellowship with Christ. Man, how encouraging is it that Christ calls us to find comfort in him from the trials of this world and spiritual rest in him. But here's one thing that these people were certain of and that you and I can be certain of is that he does not call his people into a plush life of comfort, but in fact, daily discomfort. Now that is radically different probably from what most of us, right, are are considering day in, day out as it comes to and relates to following after Jesus. See, those that Jesus is speaking to here in Mark 6 are both are both unable and unwilling to see and submit to this Jesus. And it causes Jesus, this is amazing, to marvel at their disbelief. This is the response of Jesus to what has taken place in his hometown of Nazareth. He is astonished at their response to him. And so what's the point? Well, here is the point. I don't desire for you and I don't desire for us. For the skeptic to consider the word of the Lord and see how it might stir your heart towards repentance, belief, and life. This is how we ought to respond to this passage. For the disciple of Jesus, I don't desire that a vibrant and living relationship with Christ would be neglected because of an unwillingness to rest on the hope of the gospel and embrace your new identity. Two things. You have not been called into a life of comfort, and you have not been called into a life of comfort. (laughs) Okay? And I've realized those are the same thing, right? But we need to hear that twice. Okay? We have not been called into a life of comfort. 
You have been, I have been, we have been commanded to love God and to love people. You have been, and I have been, we have been commissioned to go and make disciples. And we have been equipped for this work. Right, the, the only one who makes this work possible is the Spirit of God residing within the people of God. And so all that God would call His people to, He empowers us for. Now, what will that cause for us? Well, it will cause us to die to ourselves every day. Because loving people, even difficult people, is challenging. And in and of ourselves, it is wholly impossible. It is possible in and only through the power of Christ that now works within his people. We have been commissioned to live lives, not, not comfortable lives, but lives of discomfort, going and making disciples, pursuing after people, and taking advantage of the God-ordained opportunities for gospel engagement that he provides us with every day. We have been equipped, and so we flee from familiarity, and we seek to walk in faith, confident that the work that God has begun in us, that he will bring to completion. And that, the work that he began in Mark chapter 6, that we see at the end of our passage here in verse 6, Jesus marvels because of their unbelief, and then, man, he goes out. He went out among the villages, and he continued teaching. In the face of rejection and out of an overflow of grace, we see Christ continue the work. And we see Christ now, by the power of the Spirit, empowering his people for this same work. This is how he continues. This is how he continues. This is how the gospel is advanced. This is the means by which God has ordained the advancement of his gospel, that his people might be empowered and equipped by the Spirit to go out and to share this good news with other people. And that calls us, it beckons us into a life of discomfort because we are no longer living in light of what is ultimately good for us or what we desire, but what is good for others and what God would desire. And so to revisit our main idea, it is this, that we do not come to Jesus on our terms, but are to see him for who he really is. Christ heals sinners, marked by the effects of a fallen world through his touch and his message of grace. And he does so now by grace, his sovereign power and the movement of his people. And so how do we respond? Well, we are to approach the biblical Christ and to make a, a sure profession on him, which could be different from who we think he is or who we hope he is, but instead we embrace him as he is displayed on the pages of scripture as the authoritative one who displays for us at the conclusion here of our time together this morning in verse 6 of Mark chapter 6 what it looks like to respond to rejection as we seek to live right out our faith engaging others with the gospel gospel centrality gospel engagement, what happens is we are rejected. Well, Jesus shows us exactly what that looks like here in verse 6. Rejected, what do we do? We continue the work, right? We continue the work. This is how God's people respond to hardship and rejection in this world, right? And so are we putting ourselves in positions to be rejected by people? We're scared to death of rejection, 
But it appears, in light of what we see here, that this is the life that we have been called to live and the life that we have been equipped for. And so we approach Jesus in this way. We look to Christ and we approach him in humility. James chapter 4, verse 6 says this, that God opposes the proud, oh, but he gives grace to the humble. And so let us approach Christ this morning, the biblical Christ, with great humility, right? Fear, pride, and contempt more than you fear anything else. Because how do we see Jesus respond to the the rejection of of his person here? Well, he continues on. His heart is broken and he continues on. And so fear pride and contempt. Fear, pride, and contempt more than you fear anything else. Fear, pride, and contempt more than you fear loneliness. Fear, pride, and contempt more than you feel marginalization and discomfort and uncertainty and struggle. Let us fear, pride, and contempt and familiarity, and let us run this morning to Jesus. Considering these questions, does your consideration of Christ stop short of acceptance and adoration? If it does, then there needs to be a change. If it does, there needs to be a change. And secondly, this, what is it that most influences your life? What is it that most informs the way that you live your life? Is it familiarity or is it faith? Let us as God's people live lives of faith. And and, and knowing, taking comfort in the fact that we struggle and we fail, And yet God is most gracious to sustain us and to keep us and to continue to work in us and through us. I want to close with this. J.C. Ryle says this. What What does it cost a man to be a Christian? This is the question that he's answering. What does it cost us to follow after Christ? What does it cost a man to be a Christian? A true Christian. He says this. It will cost him self righteousness. He must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must go to heaven. And this is how we go, right? This is how we go. This is our hope for eternity. We must go to heaven as poor sinners saved by free grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. And so who is that other? That is Christ, right? Our, our, our entrance into eternity and in the recreation of all things and the final death of, of, of death, right? And in the absence of sin, presence with perfect community with God and his people rests on the finished work of Christ, right? So that's our hope this morning. To, to live this life and to enjoy this life and the life to come is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so let us, as we conclude our time together this morning, man, and we consider what it looks like and what it means to follow after Jesus, to embrace the biblical Christ and to embrace a life of discomfort, but a life of joy as God brings us to a greater awareness and appreciation of who he is and what he has done for us through difficulty, man, let us embrace that life and let us do so to the glory of Christ. Amen? Oh, it's so good. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. 
Thank you um, that you pursue after us as, as rebel sinners. You have sought us and you have bought us and you have done so with your redeeming blood. That you gave, uh, that you gave uh, all of your wrath, all of your wrath upon, upon your son at the cross so that we might find assurance in his finished work, that, that he is indeed our atoning sacrifice. And so, so bring us this morning to a posture of, of humility and adoration and worship to and for Christ. May Christ, may the good news of the gospel, what you have done for us, what you are now doing in us and through us and where you are taking us, may it inform and transform the way that we live our lives each day. We love you. And we are grateful for the hope of the resurrection, Christ, the defeating death for us, absorbing your wrath so that we might indeed approach you with confidence and boldness this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, as, as